Okay, we're going to First Peter or Second Peter, chapter number one. Second Peter, chapter one. And if you're working with one of those tablet things, verse three. Every week I, I get a little surprise in my mailbox down on my office door. Um, I've got some artists that like to give me pictures of things that uh, I find it very interesting because I pick up things during the sermon and they put them down on paper and they graphically design it. And what I like about the one I got here today, I got three of them today, but this one stood out because my hair's a whole lot darker in this picture than it is here. And I said, I appreciate that. But here's got a picture of me. I don't know if you can see it quite that far away. There's a picture of me there. And it says, no buts, no ifs. And then it has a skull. And then it says, no saying the words. Don't say them or. And then it's got a face with the eyes and the crisscross look. That looks like it. And the tongue is hanging out too. And I didn't know I was threatening anybody with that. But And then it says, if someone goes into danger, snatch them. And I said, that's pretty cool. But I get these pictures every week, and I'm starting to put them up in my office, and you see them on the door and things like that. And So I won't need to paint that office. I'm going to wallpaper it <laughs> with pictures. There will be a lot of them. And I think that's fun. But every single time I get one, there's always something about the sermon. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and what's funny, too, is that many of them on the back would say, from question mark. And I don't know who question mark is yet. But I'm, I'm just enjoying it a whole bunch. And it's fun to see that. And, and uh, most of them say, he is able, he is able, God is able, and things like that. And I think that's kind of cool. So... Anyway, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 are some of the dearest verses to me uh, that I find in this book. I love to go into that passage. I want to just see it with you first before we start to talk about it. As Peter starts to write there, you see in the verse 1, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who had received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That is such a powerful uh, paragraph to look through. And the pieces that are in it, We've been talking about our need to grow in our knowledge of God and our Savior. Peter says that a lot in this book. But when you start picking apart the pieces in verse number 3, and just lay them out there, talking about his divine power, that's the same word that we're looking at in Jude. 
the ability of God, the power of God. It's the same word dunamis in the Greek. By his his divine power has given to us, I use the word given, granted is a good word too, but given to us, <coughs> excuse me, everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Isn't that such a powerful little thing? Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I want to break that all down with you this evening and look at these pieces individually and put them together and see what a beautiful, beautiful thing God has done for us. So, as we're starting to, to pull this apart, and, and what I find interesting is in uh, the Greek circles that I get to study with and teach and things of that nature, so many times they will say things like, Luke is about the hardest guy to translate. He's pretty intense with his words. Uh, Paul is challenging. He's much deeper along when you read Paul's letters and things. Uh, he, he's, well, he's got enough of it in there. You can study Paul quite a bit. Usually when they get to Peter, they say, well, you know, he was a fisherman. And he just wasn't, you know, up to the same par as the other guys with some of these things. But I'll tell you what, some of the hardest chapters and verses to deal with are in Peter. One of them, because sometimes he made up his own words. If there wasn't a word to match what he wanted to say, he'd take three words and add them together and make a new word. And so, I would say, as I studied Peter, my vocabulary grew a whole lot because of the new words I encountered in his book. Quite honestly, if you could read this, if we could all sit down and read it together in the Greek, you would say, Peter was not lacking anything in language skills. Uh, his words are impressive, and of course, add the Holy Spirit's work in that too, and you've got quite a picture. Somebody's bringing me water. Isn't that nice? Thank you very much. <coughs> when the wind stops, I'll be better. But... Um, There is a lot of dust out there, and my system does not like that. Thank you, Roy. Thank you very much. Okay, so, when he starts to explain things here, we're talking about two levels of understanding God's ability. In the morning, of course, with Jude. Here in the evening, the, the stress for us is to know him better. To grow in our knowledge of him, because as I said before, even this morning, that the more we know him, the more we trust him. And Peter goes right at it with the knowledge. And when we get to chapter 2 and start putting them together in that way, the books are almost, well, they're very similar. They're, I would not say exact, but they're very similar in nature. But Peter points out, God is able. And Jude says, God is able. And it's nice to see how those two merge together. But here in chapter 1, you can see his appeal all the way through. We need to grow, we need to grow, we need to grow. The ineffectiveness that sometimes we sense, we, we say, why, why, can't I, why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? There was a quote I saw uh, that the Christian can be compared to an athlete who has tremendous physical ability but lacks the motivation to live up to his capabilities. I've thought about that a little bit. And I've got a picture in my mind when, I, when I've read that. And that was um, a friend of mine when I was in high school. Incredibly 
athletic. I mean, the, to the degree that you wanted to be absolutely jealous of what he could do. Uh, he, any sport, you name it. He was gifted at it. Uh, his father played for the Pittsburgh Pirates, which might have something to do with that. Uh, but uh, he he was skilled. He was he was a a man who was about six foot, maybe a little bit less than six foot tall. And I was six four, and he could run up behind me and jump right over my head as I'm walking. He was a high high jumper, and he set records in the school. Um, he was an excellent basketball player and baseball. Oh my! It was like I said, you could be jealous of all these skills that he had, which came so natural to him, and yet at the same time he had no motivation, none. He went out for a team and he'd quit because he just got tired of it. He didn't like practice; he just wanted the games, you know. So he he didn't really play much on teams. He could have been phenomenal on any team he played, but he didn't have motivation. And I said, man, I've got motivation, but I have no skills. I want to do this, but I can't. And so it was just to me always frustrating to think, boy, I wish I had an eighth of that or a tenth of that. That would have been fun to be able to do what he did. Think of that on spiritual level. What do we have as believers? And to what potential do we live up to it? This verse tells us some very important things along that line. Uh, that God has given to us, the word is everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Try to put that into perspective. Let's try it this way. My daughter Carrie was born premature. Two months premature. She was tiny. And just barely four pounds. I could hold her in one hand. I remember that. She was that tiny. She was, uh, for quite a long time, she lived in Cabbage Patch Kid clothing, because that was as small as we could find. She lived in a Tupperware box, a little container that we kept on top of a cart that we'd push around the house, and all the little bitty diapers were underneath there and everything, but she, she just stayed right up in that cart. Scared me to death as a dad to even look at her and touch her, because she was so tiny. And yet, that tiny little girl had everything she needed for life. It was just an amazing thing to think that somebody that little had all the same equipment as somebody who was an adult. In that sense, that God had given to her every single organ she needed, every single muscle she needed, every arm, every leg, every finger, every eyelash, everything. It was all there, but it was in such a tiny package. And I think of that every now and then. I think, you know... Babies can be born with all the equipment they need for life, and yet they need to do what? Grow. They need to grow. But they have everything. They need to grow. Now you have a picture of verse 3. Verse 3 is that picture. You have been given everything that you need for life and godliness, and the command is grow. Here's the honest thing. There are no excuses for us. We can't say, well, God, you know, you, you gave somebody else all these gifts and equipment and whatever else, and I just don't have it, so I guess I'm, I'm excluded from the command. I shouldn't have to worry about it, right? God has made every arrangement for you to live for Him. 
Every single one is available. Let, let me show you what's in this verse. First of all, the word granted. Let's look at the verb first, because I like to work from verbs and, and go back to see what the action is doing. And the verb here, granted, is to give freely. Now, there were options in the word giving that he could have used in the Greek. He could have used the old word didomi, which is usually the word we use for giving. It's just the standard word for giving. But once again, he picked a unique word and used a different word here, which was very strong in nature and very expressive in nature, better than the other ones, because it gave this picture of somebody with with a, a, a regal way about them, a big, grand way about them, giving the most they could possibly give. They called it a large-handed generosity. And that's the nature of this little word here. He's not talking about just giving somebody something tiny. He's talking about somebody in incredible generosity giving you something. And that's the word he chose when he wanted to describe what God has done for us. Have you ever stopped to realize how amazing it is that God even cared about us in the first place? But then you start to work through how he shows that. You know I love Romans 5.8. God loves us so much, he gave his son. His son was crucified. His son died. So that we sinners could have eternal life. The, the verses, God demonstrates his own love toward us. Demonstration of incredible love. And here, this, this concept of giving, it just fits him. It fits him. Because this is the way he does it all the time. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says that we have everything in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Think about that too. What are you missing? Nothing. Nothing. D.L. Moody used to struggle with that. You've ever read his biography? He got to a place in, in life where he thought he was missing somebody and he ran into some people on a boat and they said, oh yes, you're missing one thing. You, you need his second blessing. And he didn't know a whole lot of theology, but he says, well, if I'm missing something, give it to me. <laughs> I want that too. And his quest was, I know he wasn't always, always that sharp theologically, but his desire was he wanted more. Whatever God is going to give, I want more. I want more. I want. He lived a life like that. And, and to me, outside of the theological issues, I look at that and say, boy, I'd love to have an appetite like that. Just give me more. If there's something I'm missing, give it to me. But when I read scripture, it says, he gave you everything. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. Everything for life and godliness is ours. It's ours. How can, how can we stand up and say, well, I can't serve. Am I missing something? It's all there. It's all there. I just love that. When I read that, it's a fascinating thing to me. Let's, let's go further and say, what did he give us? Life. You already know he's the author of life, right? He created life. He created this world. You go to Genesis, go to Hebrews, 
Hebrews 11, go to Hebrews 1, talk about that. Colossians 1, talk about that. John 1, talk about that. How many times does it keep bringing up the fact that this world was created by God? Created by God. What did he put on this earth? He put plants that live, until some of us get a hold of them, right? He put plants that live. He put animals that live. Birds that fly, and they live. Fish that are in the water, and they live. He put man on this earth. Man lives. He is giving life, giving life. When John starts to write, he talks about Jesus Christ as the Word, and he says, in him is life. And he equates him immediately to the Father as to God the Creator. It's amazing to read these things as you walk through them and you say, wow, life is, that's his department. That's his department. And I know scientists try very hard to try to duplicate that. They said, we've got to figure this out. We've got to, you know, where does that come from? What, what is that spark or whatever you want to call it that makes something that's just a, a piece of, of material suddenly spring into life? God knows that secret. Because God is life. The Word is life. It's all in His hands. And you may say, okay, Peter, life, sure. There's the word we have, like bios, which we get like words biology and things like that. We're talking about the, the you know, kinds of life and things of that nature. But of all interesting things, that is not the word Peter used. Peter pulls out the one that we would use for zoos, actually. Uh, Z-O-E, Zoe, or Zoe is how we might pronounce it. It's the idea of life in its vitality. Not just a clinical thing, but its vitality, its animation. That the idea of something that is, is uh, operating with more than just existing. You know there's a difference in that. You could say, well, this person's alive, or you may say, now that person's alive. And when we say it that way, we mean something else, don't we? That's what Peter used here. And one person says, this is where God gives to the believing sinner a vital, animating, spiritual, ethical dynamic which transforms his inner being, and as a result, his behavior. I think, ooh, that's a big definition for a little word. But it's, it's talking about the power that comes with life, the, the things that it is. What did Jesus say in John 10? I came to give you life, and life more what? Abundantly. I mean, that's a great word, isn't it? I mean, we try to get by. Mondays we say, well, I'm alive. Right? Tuesdays, Wednesdays, we're going through our routine. I'm alive. But abundant life, what is that? What is that? Well, God has given that to us. That's one thing. But what's the other thing he gave to us in verse 3? He gave us life and what? Godliness. Everything pertaining to godliness. Now, you want a deep study? That's a good one. Godliness is God-likeness. I'm going to be like him. I'm going to carry his characteristics. I'm going to carry his, his desires. I'm going to carry his loves. I'm going to be godly. 
He's given us everything pertaining to godliness. Because how much of that can we accomplish on our own? Not even close. Not even close. But think just we're not going to go into a deep study of godliness tonight because I think you have the essence of that idea anyway. But think of this. How God gave to us everything we need for that life and that godliness. How did he do that? It's all woven into this passage. The very first part of verse number 3 says he did it by his divine power. His divine power. Now we've been talking about his power a lot. We, we try to describe what his ability is and, and what he can do. It's a kind of power that does overcome resistance. It's it's a power inherent within him. It's a power that's active. It's working. It's a power displayed in Scripture, like in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. By his divine power, he created this world. This world is a demonstration of what God can do. You stop and stare at the creation around us. You can't help but be impressed. The first time I was ever here in Oklahoma, I didn't know the sky was that big. It just blew me away. Matter of fact, it scared me. I came out of Brian's cabin that morning. The first one, I came here in the dark. That's when uh, Dale picked me up, took me out to the cabin. I stayed the night in the cabin. In the morning, I got up and I wanted to go outside and look. And I went out and I went, whoa, look at that sky. I haven't seen a sky that big before. Now, it's always been that big, but in Indiana, we cover that with trees and trees and trees and houses and houses and houses. And, and you go from town to town to town, and you don't see a sky like that. And it made me feel really small to see that much. And there's other places in this country that you'd see more sky than this. Now we've got these whirlybird things over there, and you say, oh, that's messing up my sky. But uh, here we, we see... We, we see Beautiful things in our world around us. And the bigger they are, the more impressive we get. Grand Canyon things, Niagara Fall things, uh, such impressive things we see around us. His power is on display just in creation alone. And we could talk about the depth and the power of the ocean or a mountain or the wind, which we know pretty well. That's one display of his power. The second bigger display, I consider, is when he rose Christ from the dead. And that one is also given to us as a display of God's power. Uh, chapter 1 of Romans, verse 4. This is what he's done, showing his power, raising Christ from the dead. That is such an intensively incredible display. And sometimes I just stop and wonder at it. I wonder at it. But when you start to trace around all these things, it says in Scripture, by that same power, He has given us life. And by that same power, He's going to change us into the image of Christ. That's impressive. That is so impressive to me. That is the same power that He used to give you everything for life and godliness. He did not use some sort of uh, generic brand. He didn't use some sort of cheapened version. He didn't say, well, you know, this is easy. I'll just use 10% of what I got. 
He dumped on us by His power these things. I wouldn't take them as small gifts. I wouldn't look at that like, oh, that was nothing. He exerted Himself to His full ability because that's the only way God operates. And His gift is huge. And it pertains to the animation of our lives and our godliness. And He has put all that together and gave it to us by His power. And that stops me in my tracks. I said, wow. I, I take that sometimes. I take these gifts as if they're just insignificant. I don't want to do that, do you? I don't want to read this and say, oh, great. Okay, that's fine. When he's inserted so much of that into giving it. So he gave it by his divine ability. He gave it according, I'm going to give you this something else. This is always fun to me. But in the verb tense, he uses what we call the perfect tense. The way he gave, it's not just he gave this, you know, it's done and such like that. But the perfect tense speaks of something given and it stays that way. Which we usually call it, you, you arrive at a certain state and you remain there. Okay? That's the nature of a verb. It, I like it because there's not a whole lot that compares to it in English. We have to add a ton of words just to say what they do in one word. And the idea behind it is it's so completely, so perfectly, and I like the word perfect tense anyway because it matches, it's so perfectly, and then I add my own, which makes Greek scholars really really nervous. I call it the permanent tense. Because usually when I see this in operation in theological circles, it's the things that God has done for us that He will keep that way. And what He has done is given to us in that perfect tense. And I, I look at that and I said, this is so much fun. In other words, He, he so completely gave you that gift that it's Days permanently your possession. No strings to pull it back. No, no uh, limits on its duration. It doesn't come with a two-year warranty and then too bad. This is the kind of thing that stays just like God has given to it. And that's the beauty of it because if God gave it, then it's somewhat based on His ability to maintain it. And how likely is he to get tired, or change his mind, or disappear? You see, when you base it on his character, and his power, and the fact that he's eternal, his gifts are wonderful, aren't they? As kids, by now we would have broken three Christmas gifts, just by playing with them roughly, or such like that. That's the way we were. We gave a gift and we'd wear it out in no time at all. You can't wear out this gift. You cannot spend all of this that he gave to you. You, you cannot outlive him and you will never, never see these gifts pulled back. He used the perfect tense. And that encourages my heart when I read that because he's that serious about what he's done for us he gave it to us permanently permanently it's so complete it, it's, it just continues in his power it doesn't diminish and that says a lot for the Christian life that we have now 
and for where we're going. Because sometimes we say, boy, you know, I'm just going to try to get there. You ever hear people say that? I'm just going to try to get there. I might get to heaven by the skin of my teeth, whatever that is. But they say, I'm going to try to get there. That's not God's picture of it. This is, this is coming to the finish line and running at full speed still. This is what God does in provision for us. Life and godliness to the fullest measure in a perfect way. That's God's style. You see how much I'm enjoying this. This is such fun. This is only the start. You ready for more? He also gave it to us by his full knowledge. Look at this. Through the true knowledge of him, not you. His true knowledge. He gave it to us according to his true knowledge. <laughs> I'm glad it's not based on my knowledge, because it's not going to last. But here's the, here's the thing. He knows you, and he knows me, and he still gives this way. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there are some people in this world, you would not give them the keys to your car, would you? <laughs> exactly. God has given to us something so infinitely greater. By his knowledge, he says, you need this. I'm giving it to you in this powerfully perfect way. I'm going to give it to you. Even though he knows us. And he knows it. I mean, he knows everything. I told you this morning, there was a quote, and I was trying to remember who said it. I found out later. It was Chuck Swindoll who said this. Chuck Swindoll said, Omniscience is never having to learn anything. And that's God's nature. He knows. He knows fully. He knows completely. He knows what we need completely. He knows what we need for this life. He knows what we need to, to make us grow. He's given to us everything according to his knowledge. Think of that. That's somebody who is, who is preparing for what you need. And making sure you have it. And knowing you, you, you're going to need it for the rest of your life. I mean, I don't mind, as Peter keeps bringing up, we need to know him. That's our challenge. We need to grow in Him, know Him, know Him, know Him. But God knows you. And that's where He starts with the whole picture. And God knows you. I, I just, I'm just impressed with that. It's given according to His knowledge. It's given in keeping with His glory and excellence. You see that in the verse 2? His glory and excellence. That word glory, it's not just a yellow bright light. It speaks of reputation. It speaks of somebody's honor. It speaks of somebody's credit. Really, it comes down to his, his character when you start to figure this out a little deeper. We talk about his goodness, his excellence, his virtue, his uprightness. His, his, uh, there's even words like courage in here. Maybe it is kind of courageous to hand us these kind of things. But uh, in the same picture, this whole gracious act, this whole thing brought to you by his power and sealed in perfection as he could only do. 
He gave it to us in keeping with His glory. Not ours. How often it could go to our head and think, well, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, God trusted me to drive this thing. God gave me this. God gave. We start to take some of the credit, don't we? Pat yourself on the back a little bit. When you step into glory, let me ask you this. What percent of the credit will go to you? Zero. Not even one percent? You know, hold out for a little piece? This is for God's glory. It's by His glory. It's by His reputation. Have you ever thought about the fact that you're carrying around something as a gift from Him that is a measure of His reputation? The world looks at Christianity and says, ah, right? They think we're crazy. We believe in a God we've never seen. We're willing to die for a God we've never seen before. Peter will bring that up too. He says, what, what an incredible love you have for these people. Peter does that in First Peter. He says, you love him. You've never seen him. The world doesn't understand Christianity. And it can't without the Spirit. But it doesn't understand what we, what we believe and what we read about and why we keep going to the same book all the time and why we want to know more about this. They, they don't understand all of that stuff. But they do watch us. They watch to see what we're made of. And far too often, they assume that if we're successful in this thing called Christianity, then we should get glory for that. Because that's the way they live. If you're good at sports, you get glory for it. If you can hit a, a little ball 400 feet, you get glory for that. And money. But they, there's, there's all the way the world operates is giving you glory, giving man glory, giving, you know, all this passing out of glory. But what we know is that God gets the glory, and we carry about with us His reputation. Because we want to be quick to tell this world, it's not by us that these things are accomplished. It's not by us that we're saved. It's God who did all this. So that we're quick to give Him the glory. Aren't we? We should be. He gets the glory. Well, here's the, the great picture of what He's done. He's given to us these things for life and godliness according to His own glory. Think about how serious this is now. We carry about His reputation as we have these things given to us. It's given in reference to his promises. Look again, right in verse number 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. What are those? If you're looking for them, where are you going to find them? Right here in this book, right? It's God's word. His precious and magnificent promises. Does God keep promises? Everyone. Absolutely everyone. Now, what's interesting about these promises are there are promises made because people ask. And usually it goes something like this uh, Will you take care of my dog while I'm gone? Absolutely. You promise? Why do we always add that? Because we're kind of worried a little bit. Are they really going to do it? Um, so we make people promise. Because we want to be sure it's true. 
God gave us his promises before we even asked for them. He didn't give us promises with conditions like, well, okay, our, our, our promise is if you live up to this or that. These are voluntary and spontaneous promises. God's word and his communication with man. It, it's just a fascinating study, even in theological circles, that God wanted to communicate with us. That's an amazing thing. That he walked with Adam and talked with him. That he talked to Enoch. That he talked to Noah. That he talked to Abraham. That you just start going through the whole list of Old Testament stories and into the New Testament. And that he would even want to come down here. Jesus Christ would come down here and dwell among us. And live among us. God's desire for fellowship with us is just incredible to me to try to imagine. Why would he want to? But the whole scripture says he does, right? And he's done everything he can so that we will be with him. Do you think after living with him for 10,000 years, he might get bored? (laughs) Boy, I've had enough of these people. This is an incredible thing to read of his promises. Even woven in what we're reading right now, there's a promise in this that he has given to you everything pertaining to life and godliness, and he's not changing his mind. That's one of the promises among everything else that he's done for us. He he gave his son for us that if we believe in him, we shall have eternal life. John 3.16. Is he going to keep that promise? Yes. Jesus says, and if I go away, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. Is he going to keep that promise? We can be sure of that. We can go through all these things and say, there's my hope. There's my faith. There's what I believe because God has promised. I was just enjoying 1 Corinthians this morning. Got to that verse that speaks about if this life was all there is, we'd be the most miserable people on the earth. And I thought about that. And I said, you know how many people only live for this life? That's all they ever have to live for? And Paul says, if there's nothing else but this, we'd be miserable. That explains our world's problem, among other things. You know it's sin, but they're also miserable in their sin. And yet they make it look like they're having fun. Because they have no hope. We have hope because we believe what God has told us. They're precious promises to us. And God who has said all these things will keep all these things because it's based not on us, but on Him. It's based on His character. That's what the display is. It's His character. That's why we need to know Him better so we can say, Oh yeah! Of course he'll keep that promise, because that's who he is. Spurgeon said this in one of his morning and evening devotionals. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it's just wonderful to me. I love reading his morning and evening devotional and going through that. Um, The words sometimes are a little antiquated. Um, They tried to modernize it a little bit, but uh, if you're just enjoying something a little page of something for morning and page of something for the evening. There's so much there that just sparks my imagination and curiosity and desire to know more and and these things. But Spurgeon wrote that out, and, and I've always enjoyed that. But he says, if I were dealing with a man's promise, 
I would carefully consider the ability and the character of the man who coveted, covenanted with me. So with the promise of God, my eye must not be so much fixed upon the greatness of the mercy, that may stagger me, as upon the greatness of the promiser, that will cheer me. It is God, even your God, God who cannot lie, who speaks to you. The words of which you are now considering is as true as his own existence. He is an unchangeable God. He has not altered one thing which has gone out of his mouth, nor called back one single consolatory sentence, nor does he lack any power. It is the God that made the heavens and the earth who has spoken in this manner. Therefore, seeing that it is the word of God, it's so true, so immutable, so powerful, so wise, I will and must believe the promise. Yeah. Because when we talk about the promise, we have to look at the promiser, don't we? And notice, in this context, what he has done for us is based on his promises. And his promises are magnificent, it says. Precious, it says. That's the New American Standard. You probably have other words in there. But just uh, what adjective would you like to put with it? That speaks of it in such glorious terms. I don't use the word precious too often. I save that word for precious things, right? You could talk about little children and say they're precious. I guess they are. But I don't want to waste that word on something little. I want it on big things, right? And things like uh, magnificent. What do you use that word for? These are good words. But what I also like about this is these things that God has done for us. Look at the rest of this. So that by them you might became partaker, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He has given to us these things for a purpose. So that. It pops up, doesn't it? So that. There's a purpose in this gift, too. There's a purpose behind it. I, I always like to examine the purpose for things. I like to ask that question, why? Why did they do that? Why did they? What's the purpose behind this? I, I somewhat, in my mind, think, think somewhat like a detective. I always have to figure it out. I say, why? Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Then I ask myself, why did God do this? Why did God pour all of this into people like you and me? And then anchor it with his promises and show it by his, his, uh, his reputation that these things are going to be ours permanently so that we are like Christ. We see the words so that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Why? What is the, what is the purpose behind this? He always gives with purpose. I, I, I've come convinced of that. God doesn't do anything just out of a whim and say, well, that was fun. All right? He always, if you look for it, you're fine. Every act he does has a purpose. The reason he called you is on purpose. Did you know that? The reason he saved you was for a purpose. Everything he does, he does really on purpose, but with a purpose. I like to call sanctification 
as the idea that God has set us apart for a purpose. He didn't just set us apart, but he set us apart for a purpose. And scripture would say things like that, that he saved us because, or for, or in order that. So God's not surprised at your salvation, is he? When you step into heaven someday, he's going to say, how'd you get here? (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) No? Didn't he orchestrate this whole thing? It all starts with his calling. I'm just still amazed by that whole thing. That he would call us? It's, it's, in other words, I say it this way, and I say it a lot this way. This is God's initiation toward us. We did not initiate it. He did it. And in case you ever wonder how that should be, go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and realize he did all this before the foundation of the world. That means you couldn't have been here. I don't think you were, were you? I mean, that'd be challenging. You might say, well, I'm like, like, uh, let me see. I think back a little ways. I just drew a blank. I'll get it. I got his picture in my head. Joe. Joe Vance. What was his hat that he wore all the time? Older than dirt. Older than dirt. And I always look at that and I say, wow, he's been here a long time. And he wanted us to believe that too. He'd been here a long time. But he wasn't here longer or before God moved to call him. Or to call any of us. We think of age and we think, well, that's pretty impressive. But God worked before there was even an earth to call us. Doesn't that kind of stun you on the inside? (laughs) I think, wow! That means he must have meant it. Because he waited how many years before we came on the scene? I'm I'm just, I, I run out of words. But this is a picture. He, he, he did this on purpose. And we look at this. What is his purpose? Why did he do all this that we're reading in these two verses, which is an enormous amount of things? He did it so that we could become partakers of the divine nature. That little word become kind of sticks out there a little bit for me. It's the word ginomai. And it it has the idea of coming into a particular state or condition to assume the character or the appearance of something. You're going to grow into it. You're going to become what it is that God has designed you to be. And what is it that he wants us to be like? Him. That's a simple answer. The divine nature. That's not something we're going to conjure up ourselves, is it? We're going to figure out, well, I'm going to make a recipe and somehow figure this out. That's not possible. But God has so designed this gift, an unbeliever can't claim it. But a believer is expected to be it. Think of that for a minute. This is not optional material. When you read this, this is the purpose of God, that we become like this. That's not, okay, well, that's option one. What's behind curtain number two? We want to choose something else. No, this is it. 
This is his purpose for it. This is why he's done it all. And do you think he's going to get his way? Yes, I think so. I, I sometimes picture the Christian life like we're kicking and screaming the whole way. Like a little child that doesn't want to go sometimes. I was that way in the first grade. I don't know why. My teacher was in a bad mood. I'm sure it was. But I was being punished for something. I don't even remember what it was. But she decided I was going to go sit in the kindergarten class that day. I didn't want to go. And so I made sure everybody in the school knew that. As she drugged me down the hall, kicking and screaming the whole way. And sometimes I wonder, when I think that this is what God has for me, to become like Him, or as Romans would say, like Christ, that I sometimes go kicking and screaming. I resist it. I said, no, I don't want to do that. But folks, that's His purpose. <laughs> that's what He has designed us to be, Right? says, you will be. And this is how he will accomplish it. By his power, with his promises, in a perfect way, in every single thing he has given to us, what will bring this about? Suddenly all our excuses are gone. How do you resist that? How do you say, no God, I, I'm not sure. See, like I said, unbelievers can't claim this. But believers are expected to be this. We're expected to be this. That's why Peter kept saying, Grow! <laughs> he says, that's your nature now. That's what you're supposed to be. And, and we talk about, well, you know, that's not easy. But that's why we're united with Christ. Because I can't do it, but guess who can? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even this? Oh, yes. Didn't he give me everything to do it? Oh, yes. Didn't he pack it in with his promise? Oh, yes. So why should we resist? Why should we fight against that? How many times that we read that apart from him we can do nothing? Or we'd say, Christ who lives in me. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Or as Paul would say, I just want to be found in Him. I just want to be found in Him. If you examine everything about me, Philippians 3, I want you to say, this man wants to be like Christ. And that's always a challenge to me. Because that's the idea of letting somebody go through everything you own. And examine it. And find out what makes you tick. And if they come to one conclusion, and that is, this man wants to be like Christ, how, how great is that? <laughs> Paul says, that's my ambition in life, is just to be found in Him. And I want people to see it. Ephesians tells us that He raised us up and seated us with Him. It just goes on and on and on. But the whole fact is that God has a purpose for us to become partakers of the divine nature to wear it to look that part to assume it and ultimately we will I like that but also you could add the fact that he's, he's got some very incredible strength inside of you the Holy Spirit indwells you so go ahead and try to say you can't do it the Holy Spirit's there too 
And Romans 8 says, and he will make you like Christ. I think it's so cool to read these things. They encourage me a lot. They encourage me a great deal. And what comes of that, not only do we become like him, but we also escape this world's lust. This world is corrupt. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> I mean, corrupt, that's a word for it. Uh, it's like, I don't even know. There's a lot of words you could probably throw out there. But what Peter says, even in his day, it was corrupt. It was just operating by lust. And it still does, doesn't it? But how, how great it is to escape it. Escaping it. That doesn't mean we, we disappear, we're, we're someplace else, we're, we're out of, I mean, eventually we will be, and that would be great. The ultimate escape is coming. But think of the difference that this divine nature builds in us. It, it builds a new appetite. It builds within us a new behavior. It, it helps us with our environment, because we start to shape things around us. That fit. It changes our associates, doesn't it? In, in every way, this, this nature, this divine nature that we're partaking in is changing us. So that where we once desired the things of this world, now we desire the things of God. Think of yourself before you were saved. For some of us, that goes back a long, long ways, doesn't it? But before we were saved, we walked according to the course of this world. We were by nature children of wrath. That was our appetite, that was our home, that was our behavior, that was our friends. And he saved us. Changed everything, didn't it? Changed everything. So, when you put it all down to it, this is what one quote I put on my notes, just so I get it. The only normal fruit-bearing life for the child of God is a godly life. The only normal thing that should come of all this is that we should be godly. We should desire godliness. We should grow in that. So we're given all these things by God, and I don't think he's going to fail. I could go on and on, but I say our time is done. I've got to quit. We'll come back to Peter next week. All right? But as we're digging away, just think it through. What God has given to us in everything, by his ability, in a perfect way, according to his complete knowledge, in keeping with his reputation, in reference to his promises, to change you to be like him. Wow, think about it for a while. That's an amazing section. That's why I love this one so much. I read it and I say, really God, you care that much about me? That you want me like that? Read it through sometime this week. Pray about it. Say, Lord, Examine my life now. How are we doing? Woo. Maybe you don't want to ask that yet. That's a pretty heavy question to ask. Heavenly Father, what an incredible, incredible display of what you do. Just written up in two verses in Scripture, but as we contemplate it and dig through it, we, we stand here in awe of what you have done. And I'm so glad you've done this. I'm so glad your word has recorded it so well for us to view, for us to contemplate for pondering purposes 
And yet even more than that, to give us that desire to live it out. To know that this is a victorious thing. And sometimes we question whether or not there will be victory overall. But this is what you promised. And we're going to hang on to that promise tonight. And we're going to be part of what you're doing. So I pray that you encourage our hearts here tonight with just a simple little passage to show us how great you are. You are able. And for that, we rejoice. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.